Hello. Oh, good morning, Merlin. How are you today? Good morning, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very excited about our topic. I've been doing a lot of research. For those who have missed the announcements, we're going to be discussing the uh, the Signo, the Uniball 207 retractable gel pen with a micro point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be our topic of, of today. There have been other gel pens. There have been other micro points. But really, this is literally a game changer. <laughs> what pen uh, are you actually using? I know a lot of people want to emulate your pros. Oh, and yeah. the best way is through pen, same pen, same notebook as you. Yeah, if you're going to have the former success that I used to have, I think it really helps back, to have... Back when you were man. Well, it, it helps to have the same tools that I used to use. Right. Um, you know, what pen do I use? I use a, I don't know the name of it, it's, a, it's a, like a drawing pen, uh, a, a black, like, uh, I don't know, it's one of those drawing pens. It's, like, a, like a Sharpie? No, I don't have it with me. My my daughter took it from me, but it's uh, it's <laughs> it's here somewhere. I have a notebook and no pen. Truly emblematic of the human condition. <laughs> Very good. Oh man, huge week. Woo. Big big week for uh, holacracy. Oh dear me, we have so much. Dan, <laughs> Dan, did you look at the notes? Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. I did not over prepare. No, but I did add some links. I, I love this. I, 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 a- I Syracuse the link page. Wow. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. And, 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 and also, we'll be introducing a new segment this week that's a partner to Dan's Concern. Yes. It's called Merlin's Concern. I'm so glad I get to help you with something. Well, I, I hope you can help me. I think we may need the Fun Bunch to help us with this one because it's, it's a poser. <laughs> it's, it's, taken, it's taken a lot of uh, uh, reverse engineering and engineering, and uh, I, I have a very strange problem. Okay. Well, what do you want to start with? Um, you know, one thing I want to do at the top of the top at the, at the top of the show. You know, last week I don't know if you guys tuned in, but last week we did a very touching episode on how important it is to get out of your own head and care about other people. Yeah. And then at the end of the episode, we concluded uh, by telling people they should buy us things from our Amazon wish list. Right. I was there for part of that show. Yes. Like 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 cam girls begging for panties and iPods. There we mm-hmm. were, saying, "Look at me, I'm Merlin Mann." But, you know, you put that link in, and I just wanted to say, uh, this is not, please don't say anything else, but I just wanted to say three or four people uh, bought things off my wish list, and I wanted to say thank you very much. Sweet. Yeah, it's, you know, Amazon, I've thought this for a long time, I wish Amazon would make it easier, unless someone chooses to be truly anonymous, I wish they would make it easier to see who sent it. Um, Second, I would love the ability to at least send a thank you note immediately. You know, make it easy to do that. And third, I think there should be a way that you can buy a present for that person. Wouldn't like that be a, smart? Like a, a thank you, a back thank you. Re- re- reciprocal. A back, is, th- yes, it, a, a, a back thank you. A back thank you. Is the concept, though, that they're buying it for you in an anonymous way, or can they They can reveal who they are when they buy something, right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, you absolutely can. Um, but, like, sometimes, you know, if somebody has, a, you know, an ambiguous uh, findable name, it's hard to figure out exactly who it is and, you know. Anyway, I, I, it's just I, whatever. I'm not here to criticize Amazon. That's not my job. I don't have a job. I'm just here to say uh, a thank you very much to the people who are kind enough to uh, to do that. Didn't get a PlayStation. No. no. Well, it's expensive. It's super expensive. I don't. I don't even. I don't even know how to plug it in. I wouldn't know where it goes. What kind of port to use? Ooh. The Last of Us looks really daunting. John, John Cusick says, "Yeah, I'm not allowed to play those kinds of games until I do my homework on Minecraft." John's working me in slowly. He's Helping me develop the withered muscles 
that, that are required. You know, my, my muscles are withered. They're atrophied. I don't know how to hold a game controller. I don't know how to do things. So that's going to well, be Minecraft, a, a though, is, like, is it mostly, I mean, you can play it on the iPad, but it's frowned upon. I think you're going to want to play it on a computer, but there's really not a lot of dexterity required for No, that's for why Minecraft. he's starting me off easy on home. Yeah, home. he's smart to do that, of course. I've got to design something and then build it in Minecraft, and my daughter's not allowed to help. All by yourself. Is he going? Are you doing it on like a, a world that you will then share with him as Can you do that from an iPad? From the iPad? I don't think so. But if you were doing this on the Mac or PC, uh, you would be able to make a world and then you could send that world to him, zip it up, send it over, and he could he could then play in your share world. Share my world. <laughs> would I make that a dot jar? Is that yeah. what I would do? Well, the dot jar is a dot zip. It just has, you know, it's the same thing. If you want to really amuse yourself, um, get an MP3. Zip it and send it to John Syracuse. Boy, you get mail about that. Yeah. Anyway, I love that guy. Um, yeah. So we, we do have, so thank you to everybody uh, who did that. That was super sweet. Well, thank you, economy. Well, thank, thank you, economy. Yeah, it's thank you as a service. <laughs> Uber for gratitude. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> We're now closing our first round. <laughs> Hi, I'm Merlin Mann from Hakuna Matata. How many times have you... Bluetooth woke back up on Twitter. Did you see that? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was in retirement. I thought so, too. Hiatus, apparently. Hi, hi. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever wanted to say thank you using your phone, but weren't sure what kind of application to use? Before you answer, hi. What if I could give you gratitude as a service? What if there was an in-app gratitude purchase? Hi. It's just eels. They're just attaching eels to us. Anyway. Um, Remora. Remora. All right, let's start over. Yeah. Um, we have a lot to talk about. I, Dan, I, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about H.H. George Chang Buddha the Third, but I feel like more, a lot more. I think I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to pile on H.H. George Chang Buddha the Third. But but let me just say, once you start googling for H.H. George Chang Buddha the Third and you start reading stuff, it's it's a real rabbit hole. There's a lot to learn about this man. There really is a whole lot, and it's there's a lot of claims that he's made. And there's a lot of information circulating around him that maybe paint not the best portrait. Yeah, of him. <laughs> it's an ironic way to put it. Yeah, this <laughs> maybe does not make the best coral-looking Buddhist sculpture of him. Yeah, Did, there was one. So last week we talked about this Wackadoodle Museum we have here in uh, San Francisco, um, Rainforest Cafe. Rainforest, and they have uh, there's uh, there's uh, a Buddhist art and, and Flemish art. And a rainforest, uh, and uh, yeah, so so I don't know. I guess there's some controversy <laughs> about this guy. His, his, did you look at his website? I have looked at the website. The, his own website doesn't provide as much, I would say, good information about him as the other articles that you were able to find kind of, you know, because like if you were to just look at his site, you would assume he is a reincarnated Well, it says Buddha. right at the top, H, oh, see, he, he gets an extra name on his website, H.H., Tathagata Dorje Changbuddha the Third is recognized! Exclamation point. Yes. Thus announces his uh, global internet site, which I think was made in 1997. <laughs> when they say, for those who are not, you know, deeply entrenched in Buddhist uh, culture, to be recognized means that he has been, by, by a, an authority of one kind or another, that he has been recognized as being a reincarnation. And so... Right. There is this. There is this movie. I forget the name of the movie, but it's all about uh, the the Dalai Lama in Tibet and how they, they do show this recognition sort of ceremony that involves, I believe, 
showing. Oh, the, I know this. I saw this on King of the Hill. Yeah, it, it's, oh. it's like the Indiana. It's like the Indiana Jones scene with the Holy Grail. They put a bunch of stuff on a picnic blanket, and you walk right. up, and if Bobby Hill uh, picks the right scepter, he's the new uh, Dalai Lama. That's right. So you have to pick the right scepter. You're shown other artifacts or relics or photos or other things. And the child, who is far too young and not exposed to any of this stuff since it's essentially secret, if they pick correctly enough, then that and also meditating on it and apparently looking at their eyes and getting a vibe off of them as well as the correct selection of the items indicates that they are the reincarnation of this uh, of a buddha or of a dalai lama or of one of these other sort of uh figures who who are reborn and that's part of this ceremony how they determine who's gonna you know run the run the religion i guess okay pitch new reality show um <laughs> tibet's next top buddha oh <laughs> Okay, so you got a bunch That's of really, awesome. you got a bunch of very confused toddlers and their stage mothers, like not combing their hair, I guess, like shining their head, and trying to help them, putting them through tests. It, it's got a kind of a Christopher Guest feel, right? You yes. Get, and they keep testing them. They keep holding things up and saying, "Is is this is this the object? <laughs> mirror? Yes. Mirror? No. Subway sandwich? No. You know, uh, Kundun. That is the name. Thank you to K- Alan McCoy. Kundun. The, Hello, Alan McCoy. Hello, Alan. Hello. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hello. I am the Buddha elf. I was chosen because I grabbed the right broom handle off of Bobby Hill's picnic blanket. Hello. This is a very important program. Anyway, I don't want to go too far into this. We have links and show notes. If you want to explore more about H.H. George H. Chang Buddha, long story short, a couple interesting bullet points. Basically, it appears, cult is such an ugly word, um, it appears that the museum, the, uh, what is it, the American Museum of International Art? Yes. Here in uh, in San Francisco, the city by the bay, San Fran, Frisco, SF, it, SF is uh, it's it's a kind of what we would uh, another ugly term, a vanity project. It appears that somehow this guy created this museum, allowed other people's art in, but it's mostly a place for his art. Okay, that's fine, whatever. But then there's some kind of weird dicey stuff where like drawings and paintings of his have sold for like over fifteen million dollars. It's kind of weird. Yes. And I, apparently, I, he's wanted by the Chinese government for fraud. <laughs> here's the thing, though, is like. That it always boggles my mind because I know a, a lot of people who work really hard to just pay bills, and somehow there's this guy with the wig and everything else, and and he's selling art for for millions and millions of dollars, and yet I don't know. It just it's such a weird yeah. thing to me. Like it's my, and it is very much a cult, and it seems like. I'm always perplexed by the people who are who are who are who are in the cult or joining the cult or sustaining financially sustaining the the cult. I guess so. I I mean, not to make this about hair, but it reminds me a little <laughs> bit of Donald Trump in the sense that he <laughs> seems to be the creator and possibly sole adherent of his cult. Oh, right. Where it seems like maybe he's propping that whole thing up somehow. I don't know. Anyway, uh-huh. Dan, if you could, could you tell people where they can find show notes for episode two twenty eight of your Back to Work program? Yes, yeah, so you go to 5by5.tv slash B, the, the letter B, to the number W as in women slash 228. And we have uh, several links in there. A lot there. of good notes in there. And it, you can sign up. There's a little newsletter link, uh, and, and it will, those links will be sent to you when we, when we post the show. It, it'll be a nice reminder that the show is ready and that uh, you can then go and get those links right in an email. No, no web browsing required. Mm-mm. Right in your mailbox. 
Um, so we do have a lot of stuff. So you can pick. I think we should hold off on our topic for a minute. Do you want to talk yeah. about the whole lacrosse thing just a little bit? I, I almost feel like we should float this as, as I would like people to read this hilarious hit piece, but also maybe uh, tell us what they think. What do you, what do you think? Because I, I, I feel like I haven't really fully digested this. I've had a, like a weird, something, something's never seemed quite right about the whole holacracy idea. Maybe we should just kind of outline what this is, the background and, and the... Yeah, it's a really, really good piece that I think puts it into perspective. And, and, and it's not what I liked about it. I don't know how you came across this, but it's just great. It's a lot of the time, I, is it holacracy or holacracy? I'm going to say holacracy. Holacracy. But I don't know. It's... It, I've I. It's not so much being critical of holacracy from the concept of well, this is dumb and doesn't work, but it's like showing what it has done to a company with with interviews and quotes and tangible changes, and it it seems so strange to me. And I was watching last night on I believe it was uh, Real Sports Brian Gumble's uh, thing on the uh, on the pay mm-hmm. the pay channel, and they were had this. It started out with GoPro, the company GoPro. And it talked about the guy who founded it and what his ideas were. And then it shows that, like, I think it's one day a week, maybe it's even two days a week. The, the, every employee of the company is required, not encouraged, but like required to go and do something fun with a, with a GoPro. And it could be whatever their interest is. One woman is writing a cookbook. So she, uh, she put, you know, she, she has like, you know, I guess as she's doing recipes, she videotapes it. Other guys like up, up on a rooftop playing in a band, but most of the people it shows them like going out and surfing or mountain biking. But or, fulfilling their mandatory fun requirement. Right. They're actually required to go have fun with a GoPro. And that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. I guess it, it works for that kind of cult. I mean, culture, um, <laughs> But uh, this is something that's so fundamentally different that it, it changed the whole thing in such a strange way. But I'm not good at describing. Hol- yeah. So holacracy. I mean, this is uh, Wikipedia, which is never wrong. Holacracy is a, so- a social technology or system of organizational governance in which authority and decision making are distributed throughout throughout a holarchy a holarchy of self organizing teams rather than being vested in a management hierarchy. So, I mean, mm-hmm. in a nut, it's this idea of remove, of basically people who are or had been managers formally seeding control into these circles, these like subgroups of employees who then make all of the decisions about how the company works. K- kind of. I mean, you know, kind of. that's, I think that's pretty close to it. And it, um, anyway, this, so this is something that somewhat famously, how do you pronounce the guy's name? At Zappos. Shea. Tony Shea. The Tony Shea introduced Shea. at Zappos a while back and in a, in a now rather infamous decision said, look, holacracy starting on this given day, holacracy is going to be how we run the company. And if, and if you don't like it, you will give you, I think, three months severance. Right. As long as you read this book. <laughs> really weird. But the point is, he said that this is so important to Zappos to keep moving forward. This is, you know, this is the way this company should run. And something like, I think, 13% of the Zappos employees actually took the offer and left. Which I, I have to say, I don't think that they thought it would be that many people. I doubt that they thought that either. And and this is already inside of a company where there's a standing offer to get severance. If you, if you don't like your job, you can quit at any time. And right. so, I mean, like for a long time, I mean, Zappos has been held up and Tony Shea in particular has been such a, um, you know, kind of heroic character. Mm. I think also of that, quote-unquote leaked slide deck of the Netflix 
policies on uh, employment. Do you remember that a few right. years ago? I think we talked yes. about that. And yes. the, the, I don't know. Again, who knows how real any of this is, but it was this whole thing of like, there is no such thing as vacation time. You just go whenever you want. It's metal, mellow. Like no one wears shoes, have a dog. And it was just like this whole system of basically trying to remove any of the formality and HR stuff that let's be honest, a lot of us have found very frustrating in the past. Okay. Oh yeah. Right. But, but now it's funny. So now what we're talking about here is a piece from, um, go here to got it in the insta paper let's just take a sec this is a piece on pando.com written by paul carr called a holacracy of dunces mm-hmm. and um i'm just gonna say it it's a hit piece <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> on yeah. tony shea um but it, it's it's very interesting in light of how we are increasingly having conversations about whether meritocracy in silicon valley is a thing <laughs> like how much you know the the uh, Collapsing management actually ends up helping rank and file employees, especially women and minorities. I think there's a lot of you know interesting conversations about that that I, I'm finding very interesting anyway. And this I don't know it just comes at an interesting time. I, I have to say I think I think it is kind of a, a hit job. At the same time, Paul Carr does very clearly say, "Look, I've been funded by this guy. I know whereof I speak." Right, right. So it's not it's not even really so much an attack on holacracy. It's not even it's not even so much an attack on on the Zappos management style. It ends up being an attack on Tony Shea to mm-hmm. say that he is a guy in this author in this writer's opinion who is uh, pretty much allergic to friction and to having to deal with people and will do anything to not have to have that he's the delivering happiness guy that he does it and I have no way of knowing whether this is true or not. I just thought it was a very interesting article and we've been kind of you and I offline have been bouncing around the idea of talking about whether and when this holacracy idea could work, like where and when it could work. So again, I, I'm not trying to say go pile on Tony Shea, but it was a very interesting article. The stuff he had to say about the downtown development stuff in Las Vegas was I had no, I, I didn't know any of that. No, neither did I. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't really think about Las Vegas a lot, but that's where the company is, and it's it's just fascinating to me because of the way that he came out with this announcement and the way that he kind of boldly and brashly said, "Hey, this is what we're doing, and you know what? If you don't like it, you you don't you know that's okay. You need to get on board with it. But if you're not on board with it, go." Right. And that that to me, if if I'm a CEO of a company, a, a big company that's doing a lot of business that got bought by Amazon, like. I almost feel, and again, I've I've never spoken to him. I was going to interview him for a show, actually, but it didn't it didn't work. Schedules didn't work. But I feel like he he was really thought he was doing something that was like bold that people were really going to get on board with, and he thought he was going to initiate a, a really big trend and make this thing that like this is the future way that companies should be. But to me, it sounds completely. Uh, like it would just be untenable and just wouldn't work. And I I would love to hear more from people who are, are saying that it does work and that it's great. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like, I looked for that after you sent me the article. I'm not seeing very much of that. And that's right. concerning. Yeah, I, I agree. I, before I say anything, I, cause I have a lot of super strong opinions on this just based on my own reckoning. So I'm reluctant to say a lot until I hear from other people. If there are people out there who work at medium where apparently this has been implemented, I'd love to hear from them. If they want to email us or say something on Twitter, I'd love that. I mean, one thing that the, the author says that uh, seems reasonable is that a system like this is much more likely to work. If you use it from the beginning from a one or two person startup 
start, really start from the beginning with something like this, which I think for a million reasons makes more sense than mm-hmm. trying to like implement it in a place that already has a thousand employees or more. Um, and I guess that's the nut here is that Zappos was the first company, like high profile company with over a thousand employees who was going to try mm-hmm. and implement this. I mean, I think that this is probably reductive, but the, the basic nut of it is that there aren't, aren't managers and there aren't management decisions and that it is farmed out to these groups of people. And, you know, it's weird because I have such mixed feelings about this. Because on the one hand, like, you know me, I'm always the guy going, oh, the problem's the managers, not the employees. But at the same time, like, I'm, I feel like I'm getting more and more sensitivity to, you know, really the, the analogy that he directly, directly references in here, which is Lord of the Flies. Like, if you don't have those kinds of uh, structures in place and expectations that are, that are set and understood widely across groups of people, um, then you're going to see abuse. You're going to see bullying. And I guess the point of this is, well, no, if you do it right, that doesn't happen. So that, I want to hear from the people that, that have had that experience because I don't know. I mean, what's, what's, your, what's your gut check on it? I mean, just the, the whole idea of it, is, is, does it seem sensible to you? No, I mean, holacracy does not seem sensible to me by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not because I feel like a, a, a good company is led by a potentially benev- benevolent but tyrannical leader. Like, I don't have that philosophy. I don't look and say, you know, you need someone like Steve Jobs who got mellow, but for a long time was, you know, this this person running around yelling at people. Like, I don't think that that's a constructive environment to be in. Obviously, it it can work too, but it works at the expense of a lot of people's happiness. You know, if you if you have that sort of image of the CEO running around making sure everything, like, that's not cool, um, but I, I feel so much and so strongly that there, that leadership and decision-making is such a, an important part of, uh, of, of a company and of, of leadership in a company. And I was reading an article, one of the things that I remember that was sort of a, a blight upon so many companies that I've worked for were somehow in that management and, or middle management, uh, level at a company, you always wind up with people who are always wanting to decide everything by committee. They almost want to get all the buy-in from everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. And and that is such a contrast to the other kind of leadership, which is like, I made this decision. I think it's the best decision and I'm taking accountability for it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, well, that's on me. And where you have this other sort of philosophy of like, well, well you know, I, I know these people work for me, but they're on my team and I want their opinions and let's decide together. And then if it doesn't work out, they can't blame me for it. And they can only blame all of us because we're all there. Holacracy takes that even even further. And But it, it, the part of the article that really hit me is where it talks about, the, I guess, the four things that, um, and I, don't, I apologize, I don't have the article open, but it's sort of the four things in a company that it doesn't, that Holacracy does not address in any way. And that's like things like hiring and firing of people. Um that's you know that's missing from uh, from from the way that this system is set up, and I just don't you know it. It's like my a comparison would be to being a libertarian. If you're a libertarian, you you believe strongly in uh, personal responsibility, right? In in the ability of every single human being to to make intelligent, careful decisions about the world and about uh, their own life within the world and how it affects other people. And that's also, you know, that's the best thing about libertarianism, but it's also the, the worst thing about it in that so many people uh, don't 
understand that responsibility or don't want to take it seriously or, uh, or, or, or simply are not capable of it for a variety of reasons, uh, time or, you know, interest or whatever. It, it almost seems like that, like you, you, you need the right group of people. And like you said, I had never really thought about it. What you said, it seems so true to me that it needs to start that way. That needs to be the culture from day one. You can't just spring that on someone. You can't have like a whole like spray on culture. Yeah. The, the thing that I'm, and again, I, I, I need to read more about this. I do want to hear what people think. You can find this article for yourself. It's on panda.com, but search for, just Google for holacracy, H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y of dunces. The thing that I was trying to avoid saying, but I kind of feel in my heart, is that the answer to bad management or problematic management is not to get rid of management. Right. It's to hire really, really great, surpassingly great managers, you know, to hire, hire some, some leaders, Right. I'm, I'm, you know, we've talked before about, at least in my own nomenclature, the distinction between like your boss, your manager or manager or a leader, you know. Um, and I think that I think those are distinctions. It's just that I don't know. There's this part of me that feels like not, 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 not so differently from the whole thing a few years ago. Everybody's always obsessed with innovation and wanting everybody to innovate all the time. And my stock response is, OK, do you want the person who cuts your paycheck to innovate? Do you want the person who buys toilet paper to innovate? You know, do, do you want the person who makes sure the lights stay on to innovate? Well, maybe you do, but like their, their job, all those people's jobs are mainly going to be evaluated based on being a cron job. I guess now a launch D job. Like your job, their job is to do <laughs> this one thing flawlessly and consistently every time. Right. And they are, they're foot soldiers. They're out there doing this, this stuff that is, you know, maybe not the thing that we'd like to put on the homepage of the website, but it's critically important to the operations of the company. Everybody eventually realizes that like, you can't have a great large company without great operations. So I don't know. And then, I mean, there's this other part of me and uh, I will shut up about this part, but there's the other part of me that is really curious about what this means for like, in the example he gives, this is just an anecdote, but, uh, um, guy saying, I can't get fired. I, j- I can just wait her out. And overhearing this conversation of this guy who wants to leverage the system to basically get this woman fired because he doesn't like her. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I maybe, maybe enough said, uh, but I, I thought it was a very interesting, very well-written piece. Uh, uh, and, uh, like I say, it's, it's, it's only in some ways only tangentially about holacracy. It's mainly more about like, you know, it, it makes Tony Shea sound like a nut is what it does. <laughs> I mean, whether it really he, does, whether he no, is it, or not, that's what the article does. Absolutely, one hundred percent make makes him sound a little a little wacky, but and and like oddly detached from what's actually happening. The, I yeah. mean, it it, it sounds it makes him sound almost manic. Where you know, there's that you know, you meet somebody with a mania, and they're like, hey, you know, come out and live on my ranch, and we'll you know have a we'll have a treehouse. You know, all these people who apparently moved to Las Vegas on the assurance that they would be funded and taken care of. And then he kind of passes that off to somebody else and they're declared a bad cultural fit and then they're off the island, you know? Yeah, right. But I, I think it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I will set myself to learning more about what this stuff is, but I think the best education, in as much as people are interested, if you want to send us a paragraph or two about how a system like this has worked inside your group and, and you know, why or why not. Uh, I'd love I've, to read that, yeah. You don't have to, you know, send a tome, but like if you've got, if you've got a blog post you've written, you want to point to, or you want to share a couple of paragraphs, I would be grateful for that. Because I'm sure that it, it, it does work somewhere. It has to work somewhere. But that well, whole, you know, I remember we saw, I, was it, it was us, we were talking about, uh, about these, these companies, you know, usually they're like, uh, 
SF companies where everybody has like a crazy decorate and Zappos does this too, but like people have a decorated desk and it's all wacky in there and they're run, people running around and it's the big open office. And I remember there was that Pebble video when they were announcing Pebble Time that showed all of the uh, employees sort of walking around in this crazy commotion and and it's and I remember myself when I was watching that I was like it looks like pandemonium and I have no idea how. <laughs> Uh, how anybody would get any real work like Sam, like Sam Lowry's office in Brazil. Yes, <laughs> exactly. How how are you ever going to get anything done in that kind of environment? And I had a number of people who are like, listen, I, I I work at Pebble and uh, it's a lot of fun and we do get stuff done and, and we have this great fun environment. And more and more, you know, the culture having a like company culture in 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 especially with these sort of smaller companies like our company culture is, you know, every day of the week, a different person makes a different dessert and we all have it at, you know, break time. And then one day a week, we all go out and get beer together after work at, you know, a local beer garden. And then we do, you know, at, we keep beer in the fridge and like that kind of thing. I think there's something there that makes people feel like there is a, like they belong to something and it can be very positive and it can be a really good motivator for people that they feel like, you know, yeah, it's work. But it it doesn't have to be work. And I remember, and I've talked right. about this with you before, like I worked at a company, we all worked remotely, but at like six o'clock Eastern time, because some of the people were on central time, six o'clock Eastern time, we all stopped whatever we were doing and we would go and play like a multiplayer shooting game, like back in the day that it was Halo on the Mac, you know, and like we had so much fun because even though we weren't physically with these other people in the game, Right. You could see the other people running around and we could shoot at them and, and have fun. And that added that was like that was like the third company where we did that. And little things like that can can create this kind of fun sense of uh, of of being on a team and things like that. And I, my only thinking back to your initial point of making Tony look kind of uh, nutty is I I can only guess that that's what he was trying to do here was to make to to create a more intense company culture in a way. And, and perhaps it was the wrong one. Yeah, it could be, could be. Um, I mean, I think about a company like Omni group <clears throat> times that I've gone and visited with them. And, you know, when you think about a cultural fit, um, I think one thing is, and other, other companies I've worked with, I'm often amazed at how much effort people put into the hiring process, because I think that's, that is really that that's the key in a lot of ways. If you want to maintain or change the way that your company works, the only real way to do that is with the way that you hire. You can train people. Many, you know, supposedly one of the number one things people want out of the company that they don't feel like they get is more training, the ability to try new things. But at a company like Omni Group, I mean, for a lot of the people who work there, they go into that job knowing it is a nerd company made of mm-hmm. nerds. Yeah. And when you go into their their big like break room kitchen fun area like there's just there's all kinds of tabletop games magic the gathering <clears throat> D D. that you know, they're not there like those beers that nobody ever drinks out of the fridge this right. is what people want to do at lunch they 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 provide two meals a day to their employees and they can take it home if they want like that's culture it's like if you want to put this in some aluminum and go eat with your family that's fine if your family wants to come eat here that's great we're not doing this to infantilize you and keep you cleft unto us so that you never feel like you have to you know become 25 no the idea is that this is a warm place for people who appreciate a certain kind of nerdery now you know so I guess, I mean, any kind of environment like that can be weird or awkward if you don't feel like you're a cultural fit. I guess for me, it really is more that 
you know, when I was a little younger, I would have been very attracted to the Sam Lowry runaround office. It's just that as you get older and you have to be places at a certain time and like you start to think like, you know, maybe this is my own kind of retrograde thinking, but you start to say like, I, I want to be a really consistent employee for a really consistent company. Right. Maybe that's old fashioned thinking, but like to me, the thing that makes something sustainable is to leave behind some of those wackadoodle habits to understand that you're going to have to grow and mature as a company and as people. So, right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, there's also, I think, this feeling of at some point, I think when you're, when you're younger, when you're just starting your career, work, uh, or your or your career or whatever it is that you're doing that kind of becomes your nexus for your social it kind of it can become like your social outlet it can be the you know oh where I'm hanging out oh we had a barbecue this weekend or as you should say a cookout this weekend with uh with you know friends from uh friends from work and like right. the people that you work with are also the people that you socialize with and I think that's normal but at some point. And, and I remember seeing this in people who are a little bit older than me back when I was younger is like Sean never went to anything. And at first I thought Sean was like a antisocial kind of person. He wasn't. Sean had two kids and did a lot of stuff with his family and he wanted to leave work and get home and be with his kids and his wife and, you know, their dog or whatever they did, you know, having fun. Uh, his his life revolved around the time that he was spending with his family and his work was important to him and he did a great job while he was there and then it was time for him to go and be with his family and he was 10 years older than me and I was like, oh yeah, he's like some old guy like wants to go home and do stuff with his kids. You know, we're all going to go out. But, you know, eventually, inevitably, that does change and I think that's a fundamental shift that a lot of people in time see that doesn't mean you don't still get together and 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 you know have fun with people at your job but at some point you might find in your career that like you want work to just be work like it can go in this thing that you do you like it you do stuff there like the people you work with and then you go home and you live the rest of your life and i don't think people should feel bad about that right, right. yeah well i don't know like i say i, I hope i hope people will uh, send us some uh, examples of um of how this, how and where this worked or didn't inside their companies, and maybe we can follow up again in a couple of weeks. Does that work for you? I would love that. Yeah. Let's get Do you want to talk about something here. that you like? I would love to tell you about uh, a little company called Harry's. You've heard of Harry's, you know. You've you've probably wondered when did shaving get so expensive, and you're like, well, what do you mean expensive? Have you actually looked when you're buying razors? Have you actually looked at how it, how much these things cost? They're incredibly expensive and it's outrageous. And, you know, that's how like that's how these companies get you. They they get you into this thing where you're buying this razor that has 50 blades on it and a little slick thing and whatever else. And, you know, they're not even that great. And Harry's, they wanted to change this. They are the same folks that make the Warby Parker glasses. They wanted to do the same thing for shaving, for razors. They wanted to make a better shaving experience uh, for everybody. And uh, and so that's what they do. It's a superior shave. They bought a blade factory in Germany that's been making some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. And then what did they do? They cut out the middleman and they sell you these, these really great razors, really, really awesome handle at a fraction of the price of the drugstore brands. The starter kit is 15 bucks and you get the razor, you get three blades, and then you can get the shave cream or the more traditional uh, or the less traditional rather foaming uh, gel. That's the fancy stuff. And you're going to get $5 off your first purchase 
uh, by listening to the show and by using the code comics, which we should probably make the, the show more about comics, mm-hmm. uh, that, that will save you $5. So you're going to get that kit, an entire month's worth of shaving uh, for only 10 bucks, and shipping is always free. So again, it's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S, harrys.com, coupon code is comics, to save five bucks and uh, get that that starter kit for only ten bucks, and it's really awesome. And if you want to spend a little bit more, you can get it engraved, buy it for a loved one, get your own initials uh, on it. They do all that stuff. Check out what else they have there. Harry's dot com. Thanks very much to them for uh, for supporting the show, Merlin Man. Thank you very much, Harry's. I, I I'm a Harry's man. I'm a Harry's fellow. Nice. <clears throat> I like it a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, do you want to hear Merlin's concern? I would yes. Yes. Merlin's concern. Um, <laughs> okay, this is this is this is really super weird. Okay, this is a hardware concern. It's a mystery, and I think if I may not have I may not have figured out what it is, but I think I solved it. But I want to tell you about this and what you, what you would do. Okay. Okay. So in our house, we have one, two, four lightning devices. Excuse me, five. We've got we've got. Uh, Three iPads and two um, iPhones that use Lightning. Okay. All right. At some point, I'm going to try and present this as cool, coolly as I can without my opinions, but here's what happened. At some point, probably a month and a half or two months ago, okay. I noticed that when you would plug in, you know, there's always the thing where you plug, you plug your phone in and maybe it doesn't start charging immediately. You're like, hmm, and you yeah. take it out, put it back in. Maybe there's some schmutz in there. Maybe there's some dirt. Maybe there's some something. But I started noticing that, uh, in particular, one of my iPads was not wanting to charge. I, I especially noticed this when I wake up the next morning and it was at 16%, and I'm like, ooh, you know, cursing out the clouds. So that was pretty weird. What's weird, what's super weird, though, is I started noticing many of our devices, in fact, all of our devices, ooh. suddenly started having a hard time charging and sometimes you could monkey with it a little bit sometimes it would start charging and then not finish but it was super weird and so i started doing the kind of usual like weird voodoo that you would do like blowing into the ports and <laughs> like you know kind of scrubbing on the lightning thing thinking oh maybe there's some detritus on here that's causing this to not have contact yeah problem continued <clears throat> and then i noticed something i looked at the lightning connectors and what I noticed on the three or four lightning connectors at our home was that on each side of every lightning connector, the fourth from the left pin, I guess you might call it, was discolored. And it looked, I, it looked to my eye like a blue-green crayon had maybe been in a port because it was discolored. It okay. had a little streak the length of the port. You flip it over, the fourth port on the other side was weird-looking. I mean, like that's got to be something, right? Oh yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do. Is it a device that's a problem? And then I started to think, like, well, could it be? Did I ever tell you? Have we were talking about the Google hardware virus? I think we talked about this one time. Remind me. Well, th- there can be such a thing as a hardware virus. Jeff Veen told me about this when he was at Google. Um, you were frequently having to plug your laptop in with like a, uh, a DVI into the slide projector, right? And so mm-hmm. a funny thing happened. Suddenly within a period of a, of a few weeks, almost everybody's DVI ports on their Mac stopped working. At first they stopped no working well, and then they just stopped working. 
And what they discovered was that suddenly all these people who had laptop Macs all had the same like hideously broken and distorted pin on their Mac. And so basically what happened was the everybody had been using the same slide projector and the same cord. Right. And that that cable had I don't know what you call it. It was it was broken. It had and basically any time you plugged it in, it would break whatever port you put it into. And then when you with your Mac it now had a broken that, port, break that. you go somewhere else and you pass that on to the next right. cord, which passes it on to the next computer, and so on and so on and so on. Isn't that a fascinating idea? Okay, I've never heard of that before, and that I mean I've seen that kind of thing happen, but I've never uh, I've never experienced it myself and which is which is the 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 pin again that's having a problem it's the fourth from the left i looked it up on okay Wikipedia. hang on a second hang yeah. on as my uh my producer and salesperson hattie who was listening in the other room just walked into the studio and uh nodding her head and handed me a lightning cable huh? and the fourth pin from the left is uh is dark exactly the way that you've described it in the chat room, people are saying that they ha- have the exact same problem uh, that, that you're having. Uh, Jake Barry, in particular, says, I've been experiencing the same thing. Wonderyak says it's corrosion. Uh, ZT01ZG says, I know what you're talking about. Sidor says, pin 5 is the power charger or battery. And they have provided me links to the Apple Lightning pinout, which I've put into our show notes but I'm holding a cable right now that has exactly what you're describing on it. So interesting. Yes. So I, this is, you are not isolated. I haven't seen this, but you're, this is not an isolated thing. Well, now let me, let me expand it just a little bit because here's what I did. Um, I was trying to troubleshoot this, trying to be at least a little bit logical. And then I thought, hmm, what would be a good control for this? And I said to my wife in a completely inscrutable iMessage, I was like, you know, you have a lightning cable at work, right? And she's like, yes. I said, could you see if it has that same discoloration on it right. as the other ones? And it didn't. And she uses it, you know, several times a week. Can- and do you think that it has to do, like, if, it, if this one is, I'm looking at it right here on this, on this page I put in the show notes. It's uh, the pinouts.ru, of course. The Apple Lightning Connector pinout. Pinout 4 is ID0 is the pin name. And it says, uh, now I'm assuming this comes from the left, identification control 0, pin 5 is power. Uh, and on this one, it looks like it's number 4 that is discolored. I'm pretty sure but, it's fourth from the left on both sides. Yeah, I'm looking at the other side. It is Which two, is identifi- so. identification slash control 0. What's that mean? I don't know. Well, here's, here's one more thing. And now we're just getting into criminology. But concomitant with this stuff happening was my very old iPad mini um, suddenly wouldn't charge. And then I tried all different cables with it. And now eventually it's, it's just dead and it will not start up, period, with any cable that I've tried. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if something, I'm going to use a phrase that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's shorted out. I wonder if something in the pin, something with that old iPad is doing something to what I will call short out that fourth pin. I, here, think it, I think it could be. Because here's, here's what I did. So I discovered. Okay. So my, my wife, hers, hers at work, had a, never had a problem. What is, what is unique and different about that one that my wife right. uses? Yeah. It's only ever been used for her why iPad. Why is hers fine? Her iPad and her iPhone are all that's ever been used with that lightning cable. Right? 
So uh, I went to Amazon. I bought three new lightning cables, and it seems to be better. I have not tried to replug in the old iPad um, because I'm afraid it'll, you know, screw it up. But that's where I am right now. I had all those dis- the discoloration. Then I got the problem. Then I did some troubleshooting. Now the, the the old iPad doesn't work, but it seems to have greatly fixed the problem to get new cables. Now my main problem, my main concern or concern or question is what caused that to happen on the fourth pin of those lightning cables? Right, and that is my question to the fun bunch. Well, I um, the the fun bunch also gave me a Mac rumors lightning cable corrosion article does it does it look corroded to you when you look at it or is it just the color or is the color actually a kind of corrosion my eyesight is not good i i used to feel like you know i do the thing like you know like you know put it in my mouth and kind of swizzle it around and figure that i'll get some conductivity in there (laughs) or i try to scrape with my fingernail and uh my sense is it doesn't come off like i said it looked like a little like a waxy crayon kind of like a dark this looks like a blue crayon line yeah exactly Yeah. yeah Well, I'm pretty sure that somebody out there can figure out what this is. I just wanted to share that because it was an interesting thing. It's one of those weird, like, second-level support kind of things that, like, I couldn't figure out. I still don't know what caused it. It seems fixed, but I would still love to know what caused it. And it's, it sounds like something other people have, too, so it might be worth sharing. I definitely think it's an interesting problem. I was really initially ready to, to try and uh, blame your daughter for this. I thought because, she had jammed a crayon in there. Right. Because it, it, looks, sound- it looks a little like a crayon, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, if it's if it's happening to uh, here in my in my office, it's probably not your daughter. Yeah, hang on a second here. Okay. Let me look. Yeah, yeah. The one the one here at work, which I do not use as much, does not have the uh, the problem, and that's mainly used for my iPhone, and not that that often. JXPX seven 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 in the chat room has a question for you. Yes, you there, Jamie. Jamie, as, as you call him, uh, says, has your wife's cable ever been used on an iPad? iPads draw higher voltage, so maybe it accelerates the corrosion. Well, that's good. Uh, my wife uh, has, has used it, to my knowledge, unless she's seeing other devices. She's used it on an iPhone 4S, an iPhone 5S, and an iPad mini first generation. Okay. The whole gambit. Well, it's, I, I don't think she's ever used it to charge, uh, uh, as they say in the industry, a big-ass iPad. But I know, I know, I remember back in the day, you had to look for, if I, if I remember right, you had to get the plugs that had the green dot on it. Like, those are the ones that had the higher wattage, voltage, whatever. That's a really yeah. good question, though. There's got to be yeah. some electrical, electrical engineers out there. Where's Dr. Drang when we need him? Seriously, he's a no-show again. I should ask Syracuse, it hadn't occurred to me. But uh, anyway, so that's the mystery. The mystery The mystery is, I had this, this weird discoloration. I'm not sure how it happened. When I switched out the cables and stopped using what I suspect might have been the cause... Well, I'll just say when I change the cables, it seems better now, and I haven't noticed that it's coloration again. So it makes mm. me think that that maybe my, my, the wild guess is that the iPad Mini passed it to cables, and then that maybe it was never any of the other devices that had a problem. It was always just the cables. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Yours is going to have a nice scientific explanation. The stuff I always come up with is defies uh, reason. It's always a lizard. At the end of the day. <laughs> so that's my concern. I think it's valid. I think this is a valid concern. Thank you. This is our concern, dude. This is our concern. Um, did you have anything got, else you want to tell me about? I have one more thing to tell you about. Uh, we'll are, get you know, into I, our, our, our topic du jour. I would like to ask a, a question of the listeners. Are Hi. you trapped? Trapped? 
in your inbox every day? Do you spend too much time on email working toward inbox zero, maybe? Uh. Do you get dragged into meetings where nothing ever gets done? There is a way to, uh, to not waste so much time. It's HipChat. They're the game-changing team communication app that helps all teams work together more effectively. It's going to get you the information you need faster than email. It's going to reduce meaningless face-to-face meetings. We all hate the, the meaningless ones. You just have the important ones now. And you get to make decisions and get work done faster with a group chat. They've got video chat. They've got file sharing. And it's all about keeping teams connected. It's a great solution for remote work. Let's you bring the office with you wherever you go if you need to. And uh, it gets everyone working in real time. So right now they're offering listeners 90 days of HipChat Plus, which is like the expanded premium features, uh, unlimited file storage, unlimited message history, guaranteed support free for 90 days just for listeners of this show and the URL to go to to, to access this uh, amazing uh, deal is hipchat.com slash back to work all spelled out hipchat.com slash back to work 90 days of their premium thing for free go check it out thanks very much to hipchat for supporting back to work thank you hipchat buck buck <laughs> so you have just sent me Oh, look at that. You said Is that what yours looks like? This was uh on that Mac Rumors article. You sent Mine, me Mine a... it look it's exactly like the one on the left. That's exactly what So your what first this and one. fourth are burnt out. Well, more just the fourth. The first has a small little dot at the top, but that but it doesn't look like the one on the right, which seems like it's been scorched. It looks fried. Yeah, that's it's just a little blue line. But this for the record this cable is charging. This one does work. Well, mine is like the one on the left, except the first pin is not discolored, and the fourth pin is discolored but more smudgy and irregular, I mm. think. So you can say, at home, I use all cables with all manner of devices interchangeably, iPhone 5S, iPhone 6, uh, iPad mini, I, iPad I like this. Air. I like this idea, though, of like, what, maybe dirty power. Like something where, like, we live in an old house. Who knows? There could have been some kind of little spike or something, Ugh. right? Yeah, that's probably, you probably got the weird uh, electricals. Mm-hmm. Can't get a nest. That's what it is. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. <sighs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get this figured out. Thank you to everybody for, uh, and thank you in retrospect and advance for uh, sharing anything you can to uh, yeah. help with my concern. Yeah. Let's go to our topic for today. Um, a topic I, uh, that came by an email this morning from Listener Ed. Listener Ed says, quote, <laughs> What's funny? Listen, no, I like lis- listener Ed. I like that. A horse is a horse, a horse, of course. Yeah, that's what made I me know, think I of. I know, I know. The famous listener Ed. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> cut all that out. Listener Ed says, quote, the perfect is the enemy of the good, unquote. I never understood this phrase. Shouldn't we always be trying to do the best we can in transmission? I thought that was a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Want to button this good. up? Yeah, no, I, I like. <laughs> no, I want to talk about this. This is a good one. Okay, had other plans, but that's fine. <clears throat> yeah, um, I like that a lot because I. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it means is that you know if you try to if you if you insist on making something that is perfect, it can be very difficult to make something that is good. And I think there's a million reasons why that is. And I don't think it means we shouldn't try our best. But I do have uh, I do have thoughts on this. What's your uh, What's your opening remark? Well. I mean, these are, this is, sometimes people will surprise us. They will send a, uh, an interesting question that is always a little bit, you know, that kind of turns things, uh, turns things upside down in a way. 
they they ask a question I've never really thought of. And, you know, it's he says, I, I never understood this phrase. Shouldn't we always be trying to do the best we can? The per- Let me say it again because it's weird. The perfect is the enemy of the good. But- it's, been, it's been credited to uh, Voltaire. And, you know, it's hard to tell the exact provenance of the quote. But Is this the same kind of thing? I will add, my first reaction will be a question. Isn't this the same kind of thing as just ship it? Yeah, possibly. You I know, mean, that, that I, whole philosophy of don't sit there to be okay. So perfect, perfect story back in the old days uh, when Matt Mullenweg was, you know, sitting in his uh, bedroom working on WordPress. I was, you know, cheating uh, my employer out of about an hour a day while I was working on uh, my own little blogging tool. And arguably, I think WordPress was significantly better than the thing that I was building. But back in the old days, the idea of like going to having a website that had an admin page that you could log into and type something into a box and hit submit was so advanced and so far ahead of its time Mm -hmm. that if had I launched the thing that I had built and used for years to publish HiveLogic, I mean, I used my own system year after year after year. In retrospect, looking back, the thing that I had built was great. Many, many, many people would have loved it and would have used it. I know this uh, because at the time I had a little newsletter that I opened up and several thousand people signed up and said that they wanted it and would pay for it. So, you know, without just seeing some screenshots of it and looking back, man, I should have launched that thing. Right. Would it have had the success of WordPress? Uh, I will say probably not. Would it have had some success? Probably. Would it have made me a little money? Maybe. But I didn't release it. And the reason that I didn't release it uh, was that I thought it wasn't good enough. I mm-hmm. thought it wasn't perfect. I thought it wasn't right. The reality it wasn't, is, it wasn't I, what you envisioned. Yeah. And the reality is it, it might have had a chance at potentially being something really good. And if I had put it out there and let people use it and gotten it out in front of the the public, there people might have said, "Hey, let let me help make this better," and we might have had a little cool community, and maybe I would have open sourced it. Who knows? Like I can't even imagine. But I was one of a, a handful of few people building this kind of thing back then, and who knows what cool things could have even just I could have learned from doing that, even if it never made a dime. And and so like that, just ship it thing. There's there's something to be said for that, and I think it. I think the bigger issue is why do people hold stuff like that back, right? Why do they? Uh, why do they try and perfect something as opposed to saying it's good enough? But then the reverse of that is is that that saying which I, I don't really like, which good enough for government work or you know right, right. good enough good enough for us is fine, and just putting it out there and knowing that something's not good and releasing it just for the sake of releasing it. I don't have any good answers on this. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. Well, I think there's two ways to look at this, and that the more obvious one of the two is the second one, and which is the idea that how how often do we let perfect be the enemy of good in terms of a project we're working on? 
because like you say, you might feel really stunted and go like, well, you know, what I really required out of this was not, you know, some minimally viable app. I want something that's like a real banger. And like, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I can consider this done and releasable until it's reached the point that I can be satisfied with on the first go. You know, and of course, you know, you're not an idiot. You would be thinking about like, you could improve it. You could bring in a community, but I think that's a very, that's a very common thing for a project that's already underway is, and I guess there's, you know, innumerable examples of this in things like, um, video games, right. Or, or, or writing or music, you know, uh, where something that is, is a begun project does not get out because for some reason it's not, you know, exactly the thing that somebody wanted. And I think there's a lot of ways to look at that. I mean, one is that, you know, you, you get things like scope creep, like you, where you go like, Oh, it'd be nice if we added this, if we nice we added that, we, you know, want to do this. I guess it's just important to, to realize that whenever you're trying to put something out, you know, the thing is we're, we're talking here about perfect being the en- enemy is a strong word, but perfect being the enemy of good. We're not talking yeah. about perfect being the enemy of whatever, like it, mm-hmm. but you know, it's not, we're not saying it's not to say, put this thing out. Um, uh, if it's if it's not ready, or, or put this out if it you know, deletes people's data half the time. That's that's not what we're saying. It's more like in order to get something that you can put out, what kind of perfect can you tolerate? Or like as I said to somebody on Twitter this morning, the way I would phrase this is that more often perfect is the enemy of done for now. Oh that's, right. You know the thing is done for now is is a, to me a sensible way to look at an in progress project where you say like this needs to get good enough. Where you know and I, I think this is especially difficult with writing or movies, for example, where, you know, you get one shot, you get one shot to have this thing right. And you don't want to have to go make a bunch of corrections and say, oh, I got this part fundamentally wrong, or now it's really too costly to redo all the CGI in this one section, you know, of the movie. So really, in that case, but but that gets back to then having a reasonable vision of what kind of perfection you can tolerate and budget for. And so, you know, there's a lot of levels where you can look at that. But I, I think the basic thing is, like, to, if you're in, I keep stressing this, if it's an in progress project just be reasonable about your expectations for what this thing can do in order to get it out in some form or fashion are the things that can be really above average to very good for now that you can improve in the future because as you do more projects like that you start to realize that that's just a sane approach you know it might be a little nuts to think you can put out like you know homer's car and like be done with it like (laughs) right there's got to be some there's got to be room for improvement or revisions but, so that's number two, is an in-progress project. I think perfect being the enemy of the good is ultimately a much, much bigger problem on a project that you have not really begun. That's where it becomes really problematic. Right. And like, as I think about this, I mean, I don't think any project can ever be perfect if you've actually started doing it. Because the second you start doing something, it's a broken mess that you're working on. The problem is in your head, it could be perfect. In your head, it needs to fit all these criteria. In your head, you need to have this schedule to do it. And I think that becomes a form of very advanced procrastination. That is, you know, procrastination and perfectionism are very, very similar. Perfectionism is not just some form of OCD where people have to have everything a certain way. It's more that you can build up your own expectations to be so far beyond what's reasonable or possible that you end up doing nothing. And that's where you fall into a terrible mental and emotional trap is thinking that if it's not perfect, I shouldn't do anything. That's, it's like being frozen in a way. It's like saying if it's not, this is such a trap. I know I've fallen into it so much. If it's not going to be perfect or if it's not going to be the, the thing that it needs to be by however you've defined that, then 
like you just said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth doing if it can't be great, if it can't win. I, I would take it even a step further, um, okay. which is that, you know, I, I agree with you, but I think you could even take it a step further, which is to say, if it's, there's basically two options here, like perfect and catastrophe. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, like, right. B, there's no B minus for this project. It either has to be flawless the second it re- is released to the public, or I will be a complete failure. That's, I think that's what people mean. You know, being good, well, good, what does that mean? Like, I want this to be like the greatest thing anybody's ever done about this thing. And, and I'll tell you, I can tell you, this is a little personal, but the reason this question really hit me this morning is I started rereading a book last night called Feeling Good, which is a kind of a weird title, but it's a really good book from the, I think the nineties maybe about, uh, basically about cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a, it's a really good, really approachable book for thinking about the ways that any kinds of problems you have, especially emotional problems may, may, there certainly absolutely is or can be a chemical component, but a giant part of the problems we run into in life result from poor thinking. And you've heard me say over and over how I talk about that loop of like cognition, thinking, doing, right? And like how the, how that cycle keeps feeding on itself. The way that you see things affects how you think about things. The way you think about things affects how you do things. The way you do things affects how you see things and so on and so forth. And the problem is if you get if you get some bad bits in there, you could start thinking in an extremely negative way um, over and over again without ever realizing that it's poor logic. It's, it's foul. It's a failure of thinking about the world that's causing you to feel the way you feel, think the way you think and do the way you do. And the way to jump into that is to start changing all of those things. Like it could include things like exercise as far as you're doing. Um, it, it could affect, you know, obviously the way that you see things, because when you see things that can directly lead to a thought, and this is just basic cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's just that idea that like there starts to become this indelible link between I think a thought and now I feel bad. And that becomes what they call an automatic thought. So that's a little off, little slightly bit off topic. I mentioned here because there's, I'm looking here at a webpage where they talk about the big four types of negative thinking. And so when you're trying to diagnose what you want to improve about the way your life is going by changing the way you think and see and do, here are the four main types of negative thinking and see if any of these sound familiar. Disqualifying the positives which means, in this case, they say, yeah, it feels like it's just one disappointment after another. You tend to focus on negatives, right? Disqualifying the positive means that you will always look for the bad in any situation because it feels safe. It feels like you're being conservative. Another one, negative self-labeling. I feel like a failure. I'm flawed. If people knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. Where you're constantly kind of telling yourself, you're putting yourself down for one reason or another. This is a huge one, catastrophizing, right? If something is going to happen, it'll probably be the worst case scenario. Right? These are obviously all facets of a similar kind of bad thinking, but you know, catastrophizing, you know what it is. It's the whole idea of like, if this doesn't go perfectly, it's going to be a disaster. But number one, all or nothing thinking. I have to do these things perfectly because anything less than perfect is a failure, right? Disqualifying the positives, negative self-labeling, catastrophizing, all or nothing thinking. So when you're going into a project and wondering if perfect is the enemy of the good, run through that list. Because I'll bet the reason you're not starting on a project that could be good or better is there's some voice in your head that's telling you that you're bad at this, and if you don't do this flawlessly, your your life will explode. That's why I think that's such an interesting idea. Well, it is a fascinating idea. And having those two kinds of contrasts on either side, I just, uh, people in the chat room are saying the same thing, that like this whole thing, and it leads to, uh, it leads to procrastination 
in a lot of ways too, right? Going back to that concept of being like a frozen, of just being like, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do anything. It's that frozen thing. I, I, there's a, there's a section in the book that I was reading last night that speaks directly to this, um, which I think he calls do nothingness, which is a, a big component of feeling any kind of all the bad feelings, right? The seven dwarves of bad emotion, all the you know depression, anxiety, anger, all those things. One of them is this, what he calls a general state of do nothingness, which, you know, sounds like self-help jargon, but it's actually true where you say like any kind of newness, novelty, change, effort, anything, as you turn that over in your head, it already feels like a loss. It already feels like an irretrievable failure. The idea of doing anything more than like just laying in bed under the blankets, honestly, starts to feel like a terrible burden and a huge risk. And so this is so far from an easy solution to solve. I am by no means saying this is simple or easy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be reading this book. But I, I do believe that there is something, and this again goes straight back to an idea we talk about a lot of reframing. Like, can you change the way, like, is it possible that the world is the way it is good, bad, or indifferent. It's the world. It doesn't need to be right. It's, it's the world. It will be right, right? But the way that you perceive the world and think about the world and your place in it and then the things that you do as a result of that can actually have a huge impact. And the crazy part is you've had good days. You've had bad days. You know what it feels like. On a good day, you have thought patterns that are positive. I'm not talking about Pollyanna. I'm not talking about positive thinking. But I'm talking about avoiding the thing of saying, uh, the, avoiding the problem of catastrophizing and avoiding the problem of making everything into a risky proposition. And there's a certain kind of practice that you can apply to that. And so maybe that's enough about this book. Check it out, Feeling Good. It's a, it's a pretty good book. Um, but in terms of like doing your projects, that's why I say perfect is the enemy of good most of all when you haven't gotten anything accomplished on the project, right? That's when you can sit there, and in my case, I could make outlines all day long because how could I even start writing this until I know what the outline is going to be? Or, you know, coming up with chapter titles and all these things, you'll come up with anything in the world to not actually have to make a mark on the page. And the irony is that making that mark on a page could be the biggest leap in your entire life. You know, take out that notebook, take out that pen, make a mark. Believe it or not, right. you've done something now. That seems so strange. You know, there's a reason I always, I always write, <laughs> every new notebook I start, on the first page, I always write the same thing. What is it I say? Um, the first page is insightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I move to the next page. And now it's already broken, so I can do whatever I want. But I don't know. I, I, maybe this is because I'm a little bit obsessed with these ideas right now about how this sort of catastrophic thinking, all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking, right. that, those kinds of thought patterns can be so damaging. And the thing is, they feel so much like who we are. It really feels like that our identity is that person, that in some ways we're being disloyal to ourselves if we allow ourselves to think we don't have to be the worst person in the world today, right? So, you know, a lot of you out there, this isn't going to resonate because you're probably mostly okay. But, you know, for people out there who struggle with that, I think it's worth remembering there are, believe it or not, there are ways to start improving the quality of your thinking to be in a way a little bit more logical. A big thing in CBT is to go, okay, something happened. I felt this way. Now, is there anything about that that is how much of the way I feel can I really trace back to what happened? Is there a mm. chance that that person didn't say hi to me because they had their headphones on? You know, is, is there a chance like, you know, just turning everything into the worst possible outcome? Um, just because that's helping me a lot, I want to share that with people. If you're having trouble with a project and you're procrastinating, it's really useful to think about, to consider whether the way that you're thinking about it is perhaps potentially kind of unhealthy. And that perfection will just hang over your head forever because you feel like you're not even worthy of getting started on it because you know or in your heart it can't be perfect. And like that's, that's not the way people actually get stuff accomplished. So what do you think? 
Gosh, there's so much to this. And it's so, I, I, I've struggled with this particular issue so many times, like in my life. I mean, mainly with the work thing, but I think, you know, like everybody has their own different sort of kind of motivations or fears. And well, I mean, sometimes the motivation is fear, but the motivation to not do something can be fear, you know, like what if I put this thing out there, right. And it, and, and then it sucks and no one likes it or what if I put it out there and it's hugely successful? Like we've talked about the fear of success. Um, it, that sounds kind of like a little bit of a pompous kind of attitude of like, of course, this thing is going to be amazing and like it's going to be great. But what if it is amazing and then it's great and I have to do it? But that's like a legitimate fear, too, that I struggled with a lot of like, what if I do something and, and people do want to use it? Now I'm now I'm responsible for that thing. Mm-hmm. Now people will will hold me accountable for the server's uptime. Whereas if I'm the only one using it and it goes goes offline, then it's just on me. But like, what if there's thousands of people or hundreds or dozens of people using this thing or counting on this thing and I, and, and it doesn't work or it doesn't do the thing. And, and that's, that can be very real too. I don't know why that kind of popped into my mind while I was listening to you talk about it, but I, I think it's very easy for us to make excuses or reasons why we shouldn't do something or why we should hold off on doing it. And they can come from so many different places or come from so many different fears or, uh, you know, you know, it, it, it's so easy to not do something. You and I have talked a lot on the air and offline about a talk that Andrea Fella did, um, at the insight minutes, insight meditation center. Is that what it's called? IMC. IMC. Yeah. And you and I both talked about how much we really love this talk that she does on anxiety, worry, and fear. Yeah. And it's a fantastic talk. And I, I feel a little less crazy every time that I listen to it. <laughs> right. But there's one thing that she says in there that really unexpectedly hits me every time I hear it. And first of all, you know, she kind of does the whole like Webster's defines thing of like explaining those, those differences, you know, like mm-hmm. fear is like a, you know, a kind of a present thing that's coming at you. Anxiety is kind of located more in your body. It's a physical thing that's uncertainty about the future. And then worry is kind of the repetitive, morose thinking of turning something over and over. Heavily related? Absolutely. But those are all flavors of that thing. So it's one thing to say I'm afraid of a bear. It's one thing to say like I'm anxious about retirement. It's another, another thing to say, I'm, I'm worried that my kid will get into a good school. Those are all you know, like very kind of valid things to have on your mind. And you know, fear has a role in helping us figure out what we could be doing better. She says something, though, that I thought was so on point, where she says that you know, one of the things that can be in the center of a lot of those fears, anxieties, and worries is not just loss of life or loss of health or loss of wealth. It's loss of self. Like the thing that we ultimately, maybe it's just me, the thing you worry about a lot is like finding some crack in the integrity of you to Mm. where now you're not who you, you're not this this whole indefensible person. In the case of uh, the fear of success stuff, which sounds so crazy and so first world, but I mean, look at your example. Like, do I really have it in me to ramp this up? What happens if I get the bill for all these servers and I don't have enough users? And what if, what if, what if? Your mind starts going through, like that. Like she says about that sutta, you start going through all these possible things that could happen in the future. And because you're, you know, a worried, conservative, normal person, you tend to look for everything negative that's going to happen. Fear of success is not the opposite of fear of failure. It's actually extremely, it's just a different version of fear of failure. 
<laughs> it's fear of public failure is what fear of success is in some ways. Because now, you know, you are in a position to look really bad. And I think that's the part that we're reluctant to admit is it's the fear of the loss of self or the lack of integrity of self, the wholeness of self that can sometimes drive a lot of those fears. Does that resonate? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, there's, this is a really big topic, isn't it? It is. It um, is. And I mean, these are the kinds of things that like you, you, you might be struggling with internally without really knowing that you're struggling with it. That whole concept of the, the sense of self, the thing being broken, like, Anytime something forces us to sort of deal with or examine a reality or open a mind door, as you say, um, it, it, it can be an uncomfortable situation. And we generally, back, you know, you, you brought up the Buddhist thing. We, ta- we, we tend to avoid things that make us feel uncomfortable. We as a, as a, you know, as a species. Oh, yeah. And not least because, um, in, in thinking about this from this cognition standpoint, bad Bad thinking, or I don't want to just say negative, but like kind of problematic thinking. Like bad thinking leads to bad thoughts, and bad thoughts lead to bad emotions. And you know what bad emotions lead to? More bad thinking. And until you have this like impossibly long series of train cars like driving into your own personal hell, like all of these things that you can come up with and they'll get worse and worse and worse. And I wonder sometimes for me if that's kind of dopamine related where that helps it seem more real and dealable to me. But, you know, I, I mention this here because I, my, it's my suspicion that a lot of people have some flavor of this and maybe they don't have a name for it or they're not comfortable admitting it, which is totally fine. But, like, I, I do think it's worth being aware that those thoughts are happening. You don't have to go into a full-on mindfulness practice, but it does pay to be aware that you might be exacerbating a lot of your own problems, whether that's about perfection or projects or what have you or self. Like, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that you have some role in making that worse for yourself, which is not, I say that not to make you feel bad, but to hopefully pump you up a little bit to realize that just by changing the way you think a little bit and being able to pause and look at the way you just thought about something and then make a deal with yourself to change that going forward, it can be incredibly powerful and incredibly empowering. And the veil can actually lift. Uh, A lot of people say the veil can lift like surprisingly quickly if you become aware of that. You know, it's just that if you go through years and years of thinking, like, I can't put out this software until it's perfect. Well, those are just, those are years you don't get back. Not to make you feel bad, but I mean, at some point, put the mark on the page. That's the way you get started. There's got to be something that you can do to take a step in that direction, to go somewhere out of neutral into, into like somewhere approaching first gear. Approaching first gear. Big issue. Big issue. Jeez. <sighs> we got a lot to think about, Dan. We do. I would love to hear what people think about this because it's something that as I listened to you talk about it, it, things kind of seemed like they make a little bit more sense, but I don't know. Like there's so many aspects in, in, I don't know if if it's just me because like, I'm like, I run a a business. It feels so different now because I feel like there's so many things that need attention and so many things that I want to do and I can't because there isn't enough time. And I never really felt that way when I was an employee you know what I mean? Right. Like I, I, I felt like the challenges that I had for the most part were kind of given to me. Here's your challenge. Get this piece of code written doing this thing by the end of this month. And right. like then that, that became my challenge. And it was much less of a, of a personal thing. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, an age thing or whatever, but now I, I see things as more not personal, but if I'm facing some kind of a challenge at work, it usually it refers more to like the kinds of thinking that I'm having around that problem as opposed to the problem 
itself in in many cases. Does that make sense at all or is that Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's there's sort of limited stakes if you're an employee. You know, just in the sense that like, you know, it's sort of like the uh what do they say the the chicken is involved but the ham is committed? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, I think you've said that before. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 the, uh, the chicken the chicken goes to the um, the chicken goes to the ham uh, or chicken goes to the pig and says hey let's start a restaurant together and he goes oh, no I don't I don't think so he says well and the chicken goes well why not he goes well you're involved but I'm committed the the hen can make some eggs but the right. the, the ham is all in well, that's a weird yeah. that's a weird yeah. joke ham like that you don't even know all at once <clears throat> yeah I was trying to find a relevant quote from this book I bookmarked a few good things in here. I think it's a lot to talk about. Maybe we should, uh, you know, pick this up more next time. No, I would love to do follow up on this after, especially after people, uh, write in about it because we love to hear. So we love to hear your experiences. If you want to write the show, go to five by five TV slash contact. And there's a link there for back to work. Click it. And uh, you can send us an email. If you don't want us to like use your name or you don't want us to read it on the air, we, you know, put that in there. Uh, but I, I would love to get thoughts and feedback on this. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Um, that's probably enough for this one, but I hope that answers the question a little bit. I mean, I think in general, perfect being the enemy of good just means that as if you, if something has to be perfect in order for you to put it out, it'll never go out, you know? And that's why I say perfect can be, if not the enemy, at least the nemesis of good enough for now, but that's not really as catchy. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. You want to button this up? Let's do it. Okay. I love you. Love you too, Merlin, man. (laughs) 